and welcome to Dear Jane. I am your host, Scott Baker, and we're glad that you're joining us today. We are brought to you by our friends at Choose Life Marketing. If you are a pro-life organization and you need to get the word out about the life-affirming work you're doing, you need to check in with the folks at Choose Life Marketing. They know how to communicate your message to the right folks, and they might even be able to help you raise the money to do it. So check them out today at ChooseLifeMarketing.com. We are joined with one of our favorite people in the pro-life movement, Monica Snyder from Secular Pro-Life. We like joining, we like talking to Monica because she's fearless. You're not afraid of anything, are you? Uh, I'm afraid of my kids getting out of bed after I put them back to bed. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's reasonable That's enough. That's the last for me, but otherwise I'm good. There you go. Um, so we've had a chance to run into each other at various things. I think the last time we saw each other was at the March for Life in D.C. Um, sort of uh, today, I want to sort of be a dealer's choice on topics. Just want to pick your brain about a couple of things, because I think I believe you're super smart. And, and I like like to hear your opinions and, and thoughts about some things. First, I love to let's hear just, my opinions. This works out well. Well, well and, I, and I think they're thought provoking. That's why I love having you on. Um, let's talk a little bit about you and I have been in some groups talking about, um, all these ballot initiatives that we've got coming up. And I think, what is it? 10 to 12 States this fall where they're going to try to, to enshrine abortion into state constitutions. Yeah. We know we've lost every time so far. Um, how do we stop that tide? I mean, what are, what are you, what are we doing wrong? And, and how well, do we turn the tide? There are some things that are a little bit out of our control and there are some things that are within it. And I want to talk about both because I don't want people to be, I don't want pro-life people to be too down in terms of, you know, do we have the right message? Are we on the right side? You know, in terms of the baseline things, we need to remember that a couple of factors, first of all, and I believe this cannot possibly be overstated. The, the mainstream media is unbelievably sympathetic to the pro-choice position. It's, I think, one of the most stark examples across all topics of uh, an incredible bias in terms of the way that they discuss this. I don't even think it's on purpose a lot of the time. I think that journalists overwhelmingly occupy certain political positions that tend to correlate with being sympathetic to the pro-choice position, and even the sincere ones, even the ones that are trying to do their job objectively and correctly will struggle to correctly articulate the opposing view. We see this all over the place and it's very important because they are the ones telling the stories and there are a lot of important stories that they should be telling about the way that these laws can affect people that pro-lifers need to consider, that all people need to consider. But there's a lot of important stories they're leaving out that give you an extremely unbalanced equation when you're considering abortion policy. I think this is a huge factor. We can talk about funding, too. There's been a lot of discussion about how every ballot initiative, the opposing side, the pro-choice side, has had vastly more funding than the pro-life side. And that is true, and that's important. It affects the ads they can buy. It affects the messages we can get to the American public. That is true, and it is important. And, and our side needs to be better about fundraising, yes. But even if we all had exactly equivalent funding, 
the the media, the mainstream media covers stories that do a lot of the work for us. For example, in Ohio, there was a story about a woman who struggled to get appropriate miscarriage care in Ohio that was run, I believe, on NPR. And one of the pro-choice groups in Ohio, all they did was buy Facebook ads with that story. That was the ad, was just the story NPR ran. They didn't even have to do anything else. And I, Secular Pro-Life actually analyzed that particular story. We have it on our website, somewhere on our blog. And it was atrocious, honestly, because what actually happened is this woman lived in Washington, D.C. She had a miscarriage in Washington, D.C. Her OBGYN in Washington, D.C., which, to be super clear, Washington, D.C. has no gestational limits on abortion. It's a very pro-choice, pro-abortion environment. And her OB there declined to intervene because he thought that she would be able to process the miscarriage naturally, which has its benefits. Um, and so he did not intervene. She went for weeks without any intervention. And then when she was visiting for a wedding in Ohio, she started to have problems. And then the Ohio hospital, she went to the emergency room. They checked her. They checked her blood. They checked what was going on. They said she was not having an emergency. She's all right. And just like the D.C. OBGYN, they said, we think that you can go through this naturally. And they were wrong. They made a critical error. She went back to the place where she was staying. She lost so much blood that she almost passed out. They got her back to the emergency room. As soon as they got back there, they treated her now appropriately, but it was very scary and it was dangerous. That's all true. What's ridiculous is that NPR wrote this entire story trying as hard as they could without any evidence or proof to say that this all happened because of abortion laws in Ohio. In fact, when she went to the ER in Ohio, they told her, if you were having an emergency, we would do a DNC. We would intervene, but you're not, so we think you can go. There was nothing in the story to indicate that this had to do with abortion laws. Medical mistakes happen all of the time. We ran a story on Secular Pro-Life shortly after this of a woman who didn't get appropriate care in New York and had essentially the same thing happen to her, nearly, that happened to this woman in Ohio. But nobody covers that story because... New York doesn't have limits on abortion, so they rightly assume that this was just a mistake or or it could have been malpractice. But the point is that happens everywhere. And when it happens in pro-abortion states, nobody cares. And when it happens in pro-life states, now they're always trying to claim it's because of the law. So all this long-winded to say the media is a huge factor. These stories go viral and people, you know, most people read headlines, maybe they skim it and then they're afraid and they rightly want to protect the people in their life. They're, most Americans, they're not necessarily comfortable with abortion, so-called on-demand, with elective abortion, but they definitely want people to be able to access life-saving care. And so the pro-choice side, their job now is to convince people that there is no way to regulate elective abortion without regulating life-saving care in a way that is dangerous. So they don't have to make the argument that elective abortion is totally okay and you should be okay with it, which would be the much harder argument to make. They just have to make the argument that if you try to regulate elective abortion, you will put people in danger. So all the people who are not necessarily okay with elective abortion but definitely want to protect people, they will come to the side. And we saw this in Ohio. In Ohio, even something like a large proportion of the traditionally pro-life demographics, conservatives, Christians, even people who said they believe life begins at a conception, I think like 30% of them still voted for this because yeah. they're afraid and they want to – they care about people and they want to protect people. So we can't do a lot about – bias in media, we could do a little bit. We can, our side could do better to try harder to have useful relationships with different people, at least in local level media, state level media. Mm -hmm. We've seen some success in that in some ways. And we could be a little bit less defeatist about trying to interface with them, trying to be available, trying to have statements ready. Those are all things we can do. But 
we won't be able to, you know, completely even the playing field. That doesn't mean that we don't have any options. And and for my part, I think the most important thing that everyday pro-life people can do, in addition to volunteering to door knock, volunteering to phone bake, voting, all those things are definitely important. And if you have the availability, the time, the emotional fortitude to do those things, please do. But beyond those things, what we talk about is it's very, very important for you to show up in your interpersonal circles in y- with your friends, with your family, with your coworkers in, in persuasive and effective ways to talk about this issue. Do not let our side be silenced. And one of the things we can do is to tell the stories the media is not telling. So it is true that it's very important to make sure women have access to miscarriage care, to life-saving care. We have to be taking that seriously and making sure that the laws are written in clear ways, that medical professionals are properly trained, all of these things. But it's also true that it's a fallacy to think that the only way to prevent these problems is to have no regulation of abortion. And it's also a fallacy to think that deregulating and destigmatizing abortion has no downsides. Even if you are the kind of person who doesn't really care about the lives of embryos and fetuses, even if you're a very pro-choice person who's not concerned about that, if your only concern is the safety and protection of women in society, it's still a fallacy to believe that deregulated, destigmatized abortion has no downside. And pro-life people are well aware of this, especially the people who work in pregnancy resource centers, who do sidewalk counseling, who do post-abortion healing, who are there on the ground day to day with the people who are going through this, the people who feel like they have to get abortions even when they don't want to, and they're being pressured by their partners or their parents or their employers, their community to just do the responsible thing. The parents who are receiving prenatal diagnosis of disability, who love their children and want to have the resources to do this, and are being pressured by the medical community to just start over and try again. We, we see support after abortion has many, many stories of people devastated and grieving and struggling because of the abortions they had and being overlooked or gaslit or called liars or even threatened when they talk about it. There are lots of effects of this. And, and the reality is that when you destigmatize and deregulate abortion, again, even if you don't care about the literal lives taken because of it, it has major effects on women, on their partners, on their families, on society at large. So we talk about concerns about parental rights, parental notification, you know, the correlation between abortion and sex trafficking, the, the correlation between domestic violence and abortion. All of these things need to be considered and generally are not spoken of at all. So the way that I think day-to-day pro-life people can show up and try to push back against these state-by-state battles is to speak your own stories of why you're pro-life, speak the stories of people you know, talk about your experiences, and give people a fuller, more varied, in-depth look at how abortion plays into society. It is not simply a private medical decision that affects nobody else and has no downsides. That is an absurd fallacy to anyone who has looked at it closely and honestly. And I think that... um, Telling our own side stories is crucially important. Yeah. A couple things there that I want to highlight that that you said. Um, One, talking about the media. Yes, of course, the media is biased. We all know that. And nobody's going to sugarcoat that. But but I'm really glad that you said, because I go around the country and I talk to PRCs and other pro-life groups. And one of the things that I tell them is you have to engage with the media on some level understanding that they are biased 
And, but you have to understand the end goal is not uh, a favorable story for us. The end goal is maybe just a fair story, right? The end yeah. goal is maybe just fair coverage. Um, and so, yes, we can, yes, we all know how biased they are, but that is not an excuse not to engage at all. It's funny. We had Peter range on a previous episode and he said, one of the things he wishes they would have done was engage the media and start building those local relationships. Just like you said, yes, those local relationships earlier. Well, and also we need to keep in mind that there are different kinds of bias. So when we say the media is biased, I think especially, especially conservative people, they imagine someone who has a specific ax to grind. They imagine a journalist who has a specific ax to grind, who's going to try as hard as they can to fight for what is not so secretly their perspective on the issue. And that definitely exists. I'm not pretending it doesn't. But I think a lot of the forms of bias are not that intractable. A lot of times bias can take the form of simply someone who lives in predominantly an echo chamber. They don't even realize what their biases are. They may be sincere. They may be wanting to do their job objectively. And the best way you can fight those kinds of biases is to develop relationships. When someone is friends with anybody on the opposition, then as soon as they hear the most ridiculous stereotypes, they have a counterpoint in their mind to think about and they can at least pause and think, you know, my friend who's against abortion, she doesn't hate sex and women and freedom. I think maybe there's more to this. Developing relationships and friendships with people on the other side is crucially important. In this context, if you if you can get to know anyone locally in media and you say, hey, I'd love to talk to you more about this issue, even if it's not for one of your stories, could we just get coffee sometime and I would love to talk to you more about why I'm concerned about this in my community, even not for a specific publication – um, then they know you. And if they, if they get along with you, if you develop that connection, they might even reach out to you when they're doing one of these stories just to say, hey, what do you think of this? Because a lot of the reality is a lot of journalists, even if they're in an echo chamber, even if they're biased and don't realize it, they do want to do their jobs. Yes, there are certain, frankly, hacks who are just going to erase and delete any sources that contradict what they're trying to say. I have seen that level of egregiousness, but I don't think that's most of them. So when we say the media is biased, we need to be clear. Yes, there are some people we'll never reach. But it's not all of them. And I do think that we can develop relationships and then we can we can slightly even the playing field even without a hundred million dollars for an ad buy. Especially on the local level. I tell you what, you just saved me Mm -hmm. a lot of trouble. Instead of traveling around the country, now I'm just gonna send them this podcast. So thank you very much for (laughs) I'm just gonna send them that snippet of what you just did there. The other the other point I want to make, and then we can move on from this topic, but you said one of the things that we should be doing now is having conversations with with other with our friends family that sort of thing i think one of the things that we need to start educating ourselves on right now is the term viability this Mm. this is a term that's going to be in a lot of the language that people see and Mm -hmm. that is the term that's going to trip a lot of people up you say okay well that's the line and a lot of people say okay well that seems reasonable to me don't fall for that trap educate yourself on the term viability, it's not as cut and dry as you might want, uh, you might think it is. There are a lot of ways around that. Uh, so, so, so really educate yourself on viability. And, and when you have those conversations as we go through the year here, make sure that you're, you're educated on that and then you help your friends understand that viability isn't as uh, black and white as we might hope. It's a bit of a moving target, 
generally speaking, it is supposed to be approximately the age when with life-saving interventions, if a child is born prematurely, at least half of them will probably live. And the, and the age has gotten younger and younger as technology has improved. A lot of people don't realize that now they're seeing not more than half, but they're seeing a significantly increased percentage of even children born as early as 21 weeks if they're giving life-saving interventions, significantly increased percentage of them who are surviving. And so when we talk about viability, you know, some people will think it means 24 weeks or even later. It can mean earlier than that. But the other thing to keep in mind is most people do not know very much about fetal development. Most people think fetal development happens a lot later than it does. And most people kind of think of viability as, okay, now we have a real baby. But it, it's very helpful for pro-life people to make sure you're educated on how early development happens, how much you can see the human form, the childlike form, even in the first trimester, and, and then make sure people understand how much earlier that is than viability. If you look at uh, any imagery of a 20-week child, which is I don't think I don't think any 20 week ch child born at 20 weeks has survived. But if you look at imagery of them, that's that's a little baby. And we have found at Secular Pro Life that it's surprising how many people were pro choice because they very literally believed that the vast majority of abortions get rid of a a literal sphere of cells. They're they're vaguely picturing a blastocyst. And they had no idea how early development happens. And when they realized that, it's not necessarily that they became pro-life, but it was the beginning of starting to be really uncomfortable with this position and starting to think more about when we defend this and how. I think the vast majority of Americans, maybe not the vast majority, but I think the majority of Americans, both pro-choice and pro-life, they don't know a ton about this debate. Those of us who are total zealots need to keep this in mind. They don't know a ton about this debate. They don't know a lot about fetal development. They don't know a lot about what the current abortion laws are or what they were before Roe v. Wade. They don't know a lot about the reasons women get abortions. I believe that a lot of people, even when they come very, very close to my own position on the morality and legality of abortion, they think of themselves as pro-choice because they want to make sure that they're is life-saving care, that there is miscarriage management. Some of them, it's also because they're concerned about issues of rape and fatal anomaly, but looming large in their psyche are these really hard cases, and they have no idea that all of those combined represent less than maybe 5% of all abortions in the United States. The other side has been able to focus on these very hard cases and the sidestep the entire conversation that we want to have, which is, when is this justified and why? They want to just stick to the part that has like very broad support in the public, which is nobody wants anyone to have to commit suicide via pregnancy. And then they, they don't want to have to talk about the overwhelming majority of abortions that are performed on healthy embryos and fetuses carried by healthy women resulting from consensual sex when there is no medical emergency. That is the typical abortion. And most people have no idea. And so it's not so much that people are hardcore pro-choice in the sense that they really think that this must be any time, any reason, how dare we talk about it. Few people hold that position. A lot of times they just want to make sure everyone is safe. They want to make sure that people aren't in really dire, terrible circumstances. And they're coming from a place of compassion. And that is the beginning of common ground. We can have these conversations. Yeah. You know, the last thing I'll say is about viability. This is what I think people need to understand. Most of the time when you get into the language, it's the person who determines viability is the quote unquote treating physician. 
this is someone it's the abortionist this is someone who has perverse incentives many 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 cases financial incentives it's like going to a card salesman saying do you think i need i should buy a new car i mean it's it's that ridiculous so i just folks need to pay attention to that let's switch gears a little bit i i had the opportunity last fall to see you give a presentation it was funny because again you're secular pro-life and you had the opportunity to give a presentation to a room full of christians and I, I think every single one of those Christians walked away loving what you had to say. It was fantastic. I hope so. It was a curriculum. It's it's called Bridges. Is that the is that the full name of it? Is it, it the what, full tell presentation us what Bridges is, called, is? It's called Building Bridges. And actually, you got to see me present it live for the first time. We worked very hard, my team, to put it together. And essentially. We are trying to pull a lot of strings from our experiences and from interviews and research we've done to make a presentation that helps people build meaningful connection with those who are different from them. So in the presentation, we talked about three target audiences. We talked about abortion-vulnerable women, because the presentation was originally created largely for people who work at pregnancy resource centers. So the first target audience was abortion-vulnerable women. Then we talked about what I call the ambivalent Americans, the nominally pro-choice people that I just described pretty much. And then we also talked about, very dear to my heart, what I call the non-traditional pro-life people. Each of these audiences, there's a little bit of overlap, but each of these audiences has their own unique characteristics. And I have specific thoughts about how we can build meaningful connections and have useful conversations with the different audiences for different purposes. And it was, frankly, it was a lot of fun to put it together. And it was a lot of fun to present it. I love speaking on stage. I love being able to see people engaged and responding. I can see the nods, people laugh at the right parts. Although I will say there were a couple parts that I did not mean to be funny and people just started laughing. I was like, okay, sure. That's hilarious. I'm hilarious, you know, but, um, but it was wonderful. And, and, and they were very receptive. I, I got so many, great conversations for the rest of the day. People telling me either what really meant a lot to me is people came up to me and said that it challenged them and they liked it. Those two things together. And I also had a few people come up to me and tell me kind of quietly, privately that they were not necessarily very religious and they didn't feel like they could be very open about that in the spaces they're working in. And they felt like I was building space for them. So that's always very touching to me as an atheist because I know how it feels trying to engage with the larger pro-life movement and sometimes it's square peg round hole. Anyway, but yeah, so overall the presentation is about how we can have useful conversations, how we can sort of ease ourselves and other people into this discussion in a way that will hopefully be fruitful and not just everyone screaming at each other online. So I dug into this curriculum a, a little bit and I want to, there's a few things that stuck out to me. Um, I guess you, so you put something together for like conversation with the, the, the mom to be, is that the deal? No, no, no. So that's a little bit different thing. We, in conjunction with this presentation, we made a curriculum for pregnancy resource centers, if they want to use it, that it's not necessarily for them to have a conversation with the woman. It's if they want to give the woman a chance to assess her situation, her supports, her needs, and to, and to have a curriculum to go through that has no religious connotation. There are some pregnancy resource centers that, you know, they have classes and they have processes that they ask their clients to go through before they access material 
help because they have to have a triage system because they have to have, you know, because they want to make sure they understand the woman's situation. And sometimes those centers, the, the classes they have inherently include religious components. Sometimes it's even like a Bible study. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you have women come to your center who are not religious, even if you tell them, oh, you can just skip that part. And not everyone says that. But even if you say that, it feels like you weren't prepared for and didn't expect them. It feels a little off-putting. So Secular Pro-Life developed a curriculum for pregnancy resource centers. If you go to, I believe, secularprolife.org slash bridges, you can just download it for free. It's just a PDF uh, that you can use if you have non-religious or secular women or religious women who just don't want to talk about religion right now that you can use to help them assess their situation when they walk into your center. But that's a different thing than the overall presentation, which is geared toward training pro-lifers to have these conversations in a variety of contexts. Do you think it's been a deterrent for some women um, to go into a PRC because PRCs are known as religious institutions? Yes, 100%. Yep. We've had people talk to us about it. And not just women who are considering abortion, but also pro-life women and men who want to find a way to contribute to pro-life work, but they're not religious. We've had multiple people reach out to Secular Pro-Life and included in their stories were attempts to volunteer at pregnancy resource centers and being basically rejected because they couldn't sign statements of faith. So, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying PRCs have to get rid of statements of faith. Secular Pro-Life understands the need to have a certain cohesion with your group and with what you're trying to do. But I do want people to be aware that when you have a new, like, baby pro-lifer, I don't mean literal baby, you know what I mean, like, they're new coming to, yeah. to activism, for a lot of people, they don't want to argue online, which is probably smart, and they, they don't necessarily want to fight or debate, they, they don't necessarily want to get involved in legislation or politics. For a lot of people, when they first have a, a life-changing experience or a change of heart and they think, you know what, I really want to get involved, for a lot of people, the first thing they think of is direct material support to women and babies. They just want to help them not have to go through this. And so pregnancy resource centers are often the face, the the funnel into pro-life work for people. And they can find them locally. They can find them in their or their communities. And so they will think, I really want to do something. Maybe I can help this center. And then they go to them and try to volunteer. And a statement of faith can be a barrier. If you need to keep a statement of faith because that's how your organization runs, that's fine. But then what we ask is to make sure that you don't just say, no, sorry, we don't have a place for you. You say, not us, but what about these other organizations? You have referrals ready, basically. What would you say to, uh, let's just say, the Jane, the young woman who finds herself pregnant? Let's turn the tables a little bit, because normally at this point sure. in the conversation, we would say, what, should, what can the PRC do to be more welcoming? Let's turn the tables a little bit. What would you say to her? If she's considering walking in the doors, but she doesn't want to hear all that Jesus stuff, um, what would I? What would if, you say if, to a, her? if a vulnerable, pregnant, secular woman asked me about that, if she said, "I want to go to a pregnancy resource center, but I know that they want me to take a Bible study and I don't want to," to be frank, I would probably say, "Yeah, I get that. I wouldn't want to either." If I were you, I would go in and say, "Here's where I'm coming from. This is what I need. This is what I do not want. Can you help me?" Just be blunt. Just be straightforward. But the thing is, that's tall ask because if she's if she's in a vulnerable position and she's already scared and she's already having who knows what's going on in her life with other people wanting her to jump through different hoops and do different things the way they think she ought to, 
you want the pregnancy resource center to be the place where she feels like she's welcome, who she is as she is, and that they just want to help. They're not asking her to jump through hoops. Uh, I find that a lot of people, especially when people are vulnerable and scared, don't necessarily want to be put in a position to have to negotiate these kinds of things. So if I were her sister or her friend or whatever, I would still tell her, you got to advocate for what you need. Go in and say, here's where I'm coming from. Here's what I need help with. And I do not want to talk about God or religion. That's not where I'm at right now. That's what I would say. And I think there are a lot of pregnancy resource centers that are prepared for that that would say, that's okay, we understand. I can't but imagine one that I, would turn it away. We have anecdotes oh, of basically centers not. saying, oh. we have anecdotes of centers saying, you know, a core part of their mission is to share the gospel truth. And yeah. they're not mad. They're not aggressive with her. But they basically say, when you are ready to hear the truth, we'll be here. Okay. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but they wouldn't turn her away. They, I mean, if she comes uh, in and saying, you know, I'm not interested in that. They wouldn't say, well, you need yeah, to. Yeah, hopefully they wouldn't know. turn her away. I um, I don't think it usually gets to that point. I think it's a mistake to think that the only time women don't access help is if someone at the center literally tells them to go away. I think usually it's more like they're already nervous. They're not sure if they want to go to you or not. They're not sure if they trust you. They're not sure what they want to do. And then you add these extra barriers. They just You never get a chance to say you're welcome here because they're not going to come in. Yeah. You know what else I loved about this curriculum that you put together? Um, you have some great topics of conversation. You talk about the importance of community. Um, you talked about that it's okay to have negative emotions about the pregnancy. That was very, yeah. very interesting. And then uh, near the end, you talk about just because you're pregnant, dreams don't die. Your, your dreams yes. don't go away. Talk about that a little bit. I love that. I think in many, many cases, unexpected pregnancy represents a moment or a phase of panic. And in general, in general, not just with pregnancy, human beings, we are very bad at predicting how we're going to handle major changes. We always think it's going to throw us for more of a loop than usually it actually does. We don't realize how adaptable we are. We don't realize how temporary different seasons can be. And so we want to make sure that women understand, first of all, be calm. It's all right. We're going to figure this out. Low pressure, okay? It's okay. And then let's talk about what you were hoping for. Let's talk about what your plans were. Let's talk about how this can fit with that. Maybe it looks different. Maybe it will take longer. Maybe it will be a different path. But girl, your life is not over. <laughs> many, many millions of people have had children in many different circumstances and figured many things out. You're strong, you're smart, we're in your corner, and we will figure it out. Do not panic. It's okay. That's, that's so good. Folks, if you've got pro-life organization uh, and you want to reach, if you want to reach um, women of all stripes and you want to save the babies, you need to reach out to Monica. Let me, let me tell you, her talk uh, about reaching folks is just, it's fantastic. I've had a chance to see it. Uh, so you need to reach out to her. Secularprolife.org is where you can find her and her organization. They've got all kinds of great resources. You're definitely, you, know, you it will be time well spent. Uh, she will challenge you. Um, it'll be great. You know what? Here's the thing. It's like, I'll tell you, I, when I go to church, 
you need to be challenged. If you leave church, here's what I believe. If you leave church and you're all comfortable, uh, you've kind of missed the point. If if Monica Snyder comes to your place, you're going to be challenged. And I think that's the whole point. So you need to check it out. Scott, are you trying to say that the atheist is taking them to church? A church of a, of a certain kind. That's <laughs> absolutely right. That's absolutely right. If anyone is interested in having me come and give these conversations specifically you can go to secularprolife.org slash presentations and then there's more information right there awesome. about the presentation side of it awesome monica thanks for joining us today on dear jane thanks for having me my thanks again to monica snyder for joining us here today on dear jane we've got a lot of momentum going here on dear jane every week you can join us for a new episode make sure you hit that subscribe button so you can be made aware when a new episode releases and you can also follow us on the socials, Instagram and Facebook, Dear Jane Podcast. Thanks for joining us here on Dear Jane. I'm Scott Baker.